boys and girls. Your attention, please. First of all, I'd like to make a little statement. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. All of your friends are welcome. Once you learn the basic rules, it isn't really so complicated, is it? Good manners make good first impressions. It's a simple enough matter to give people you meet plenty of room to pass. Try to understand another person's viewpoint. That's a rather simplified suggestion of approximate progress. But you get the idea. Thank you for tuning in to The Social Exchange. My guests today are Anthony Magnabosco and Linda Mako. They practice a form of discussion called street epistemology. Epistemology is the study or theory of the grounds for knowing or believing something. Street epistemology is a, a way of speaking with people about beliefs, how they form their beliefs, and just how confident they are that their beliefs are true. Peter Bogosian is a philosopher and a professor at Portland State University. He coined this concept in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, where he talks about how to have epistemological conversations with people who believe supernatural texts or claims. So Anthony Magnabosco, my guest today, has made the concept popular, you could say. you got to tune into his YouTube channel to see him having extremely interesting five to ten minute conversations with people often total strangers, about their deeply held beliefs. We, we link a clip after this intro. The channel is his name, Anthony Magnabosco. Uh, since he started doing that, many people started following suit. There is a street epistemology website, a Facebook page, all sorts of other social media where people can learn to do street epistemology themselves. My other guest, Linda Mako, is one of the people who took Anthony's lead in making videos. You can watch her fascinating talks on her YouTube channel called Super Curious. So before we do the interview with both of them, here's a clip of Anthony doing his thing. Check this out. So the whole idea is to get people to slow down and think about the things that they think are really true. That's why I don't believe in, uh, I've never believing in the power of attraction well i, I have before mm -hmm. but i i definitely don't now mm -hmm. i think it's uh Same think it's you. a big old, old big old load of bs i don't think like that you believe in it and you don't secret. can can i teach you street epistemology and, with, and we can do it with your friend right here yeah. okay okay so um that's great so um kenneth will be the questioner and you'll be his conversation partner okay. um Let's make, can you make your claim so that we can really understand what you believe? Yeah, so I think uh, law of attraction, if you truly believe 100%, it can't be 99, or, you know, whatever. You, whether it's your subconscious or, you know, the universe playing its part, you will, it will happen. 
You know, yeah. No, I don't think so at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, so hold on a second. So as a, as a, someone doing street epistemology, we want to ask questions. Okay. Okay. We want to understand. So if if we understand correctly, I think what you're saying is that if you believe something with 100% certainty mm -hmm. that something's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. that that thing will actually happen. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay. okay. So what is it? What power makes that happen? I think your own self. Is it the thoughts that make that happen? Is it the energy you put out that makes that happen? What do you think? Great question. I think it's a mixture of both because as far as the thoughts, like let's just say I want, I'll just create a goal, is that okay? Sure. Okay, so, because I worked in real estate since I was like 18, mm -hmm. and I've seen many people get in the business and, you know, kind of half-ass it and don't get very far. But then I've seen other people that really, you know, they get pumped up by these coaches and blah, 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 and they take every advice that they give them, and they really believe that they're going to be number one. Uh -huh. And it might not happen, you know, one to three years, but their fourth or fifth year, they're the number one in production in their region or whatever. So I really think that if you don't believe that law of attraction, that you don't put all those thoughts that turn into energy around you, it doesn't really, is it? Hold on a second. Let's, let's think of an example to see how far he's willing to go with this belief. Okay. okay? I don't believe it in one second. Okay. So telling him, listen, dude, I don't believe you. Yeah, I'm like, I, I well, here's my question to you. Do you think that that's going to help him reflect on this belief? It's okay to take a stance on it, uh -huh. but the idea here is, is to really explore how he figured out that this is true. So perhaps a good question might be something like, are there any limitations to this? Like if I really put 100% confidence, not 100% confidence, if I really put 100%, I commit 100% to thinking that I can actually grow my hand longer than the other one. There are limits, yes, there are. Mm. There's limitations. Are there not limitations to everything? Why would there be a limitation with my hand growing, <laughs> but no limitation for something like becoming the best salesman in San Antonio? Because um, could you... Hold on a second. Okay. This is critical right here. Okay. See how he's thinking? Don't step on that pause. I guess it Do this too. comes down. <laughs> I guess it comes down to what we were talking about earlier is like fact or belief. Like, mm. Mm. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't have an answer for that. But I, I don't know. I guess with I don't know. Like, I guess with your hand growing. I mean. I don't want to bring up the word science, but let's be real, like you can't make your hand grow. Mm. Even if I 100% committed myself to making that happen using the law of attraction, it wouldn't happen. It only happens in some instances. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah. What is it about those two requests that make them different? How do we know that there's even a law of attraction making the real estate thing happen? I mean, you really don't know anything, but mm. 
as far as the law of attraction for us, I think that there's a difference between growing your hand and like personal will. So, that's right. how is the law of attraction limited? Why can't it be used for anything? If it could be used for this, why can't it be used for me wanting to grow my hand? I don't know. I guess like, I don't know. If you wanted to physically express it. <laughs> Marinate in the pause. Marinate in the pause. Marinate in the pause. You almost want to help a person feel comfortably uncomfortable. Okay, that's where the reflection happens. Look at look at him looking. He's got the thousand mile stare here. That's gold. Okay, that's. Have you ever thought about the law of attraction in this way before this talk? No. No. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Yeah. Guys, that was awesome. <laughs> So that's the whole point, is to encourage reflection yeah. on things that we may not, that we really think are true, but we don't actually know for sure. And just a little bit of extra questioning and a couple different scenarios and sort of taking the belief and putting it under a microscope and, and being friendly and working with you to figure it out. Yeah. Were you, were you at a high 90, 98 or something? I would have said 100%, mm -hmm. but I never took into consideration things that, I mean, the uncontrollables. like. You can't control your hand to grow. You can't. Yeah. So, if you look at it in certain sides, yeah, it's it won't work ever. Mm. With this discovery that we've made about this belief that you have, mm -hmm. where are you right now in terms of your confidence that this belief is true? Overall, or like, because I true, can, true, true, true. I don't know. Probably fifty percent. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. I used to work with, uh, uh, so I worked at like a real estate agency, mm -hmm. one of the largest in the I'm gonna world. beep that out, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. that's good. They kind of teach you to, yeah, it's real estate, but they teach you to build your own business. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you have to build up other people. Yeah, so here's my thing, like, I think it's conceivable. I know nothing about real estate. Mm -hmm. I could probably go to this class and study it for three years and think that I'm using the law of attraction because I'm 100% convinced that it's true, yeah. and I'm 100% dedicated that it's true, and I go to the class, and then I become like the best salesperson in San Antonio. Yeah. I'm just killing it in real estate. Yeah. Would I be justified in saying that it was the law of attraction in doing so? No. I'm not after that. What's that? Not after our conversation now. And that is street epistemology. Pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? It's really great to hear people changing their mind about things in real time. This is Aaron, the audio producer for the show. We'll get to the interview with Linda and Anthony in just a second, but first, I wanted you to hear from Zach about a new way for anyone who's interested to participate in the show. I hope you like what we're doing on the show. If you'd like to help us grow, consider making a donation on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. We're getting ourselves organized on this podcast. It's taking considerable effort, and it's going to take even more. And we need resources and equipment. And all of this, of course, costs money. After further discussion, we've decided we'd like to avoid selling you underwear to get it. Even a small donation helps, even less than the coffee or breakfast sandwich that you buy in the morning. 
If you can afford to buy us a grande with room for cream, then you can go to patreon.com slash the social exchange to do it. If you can't afford something like a coffee, easily, without having to rethink your budget, then this message isn't for you. You still get to listen for free. Check out episodes on the page. Our plans for the future are totally transparent, by the way. Check them out on the page, too. Patreon.com slash the social exchange. But you might wonder, why donate if you could get content for free? Yeah, we have a bit of an awkward free rider problem, I suppose. I can think of four reasons to give. On one hand, we give back. Donating at any level, you'll get your name listed in the description of the show and early patron-only access to all regular episodes. As you get taller in that dollar amount, you get to be named as a sponsor, uh, things like record your own 20-minute show, be part of the roundtable calls, calls where we make decisions about which topics to cover and who to interview. And there are a lot more ways that we give back, so check out the page for the whole list. Another reason to donate is maybe because you appreciate honest dialogue, and there's plenty of noise out there on the news and elsewhere, but it can be really hard to find in-depth conversation and investigation of social topics. You can trust us to generate exactly those types of discussions in an honest and fair manner. And being part of the podcast means that you'll have a say in what and how and when content is delivered to thousands of listeners. Doing this is a great way to help bring about saner and, frankly, better discussions in search of what's true. A third reason you might want to donate is to support the culture of free. Freedom of information is great, but there are also questions to be answered regarding the quality frequency, and responsiveness of the content you'd like to receive. With your help, we can continue to provide quality content to people who can't afford to participate, and you can rest assured that you'll be credited for our continued ability to do so. We'll also rain podcast archives, access to the creators, influence on where the show goes, and much more. See the tiers on the page. The last reason you might choose to donate, even though you could get content for free, is that we can't do it without you. When it comes down to it, this podcast is about the listeners, and without you, it'd be a little awkward. And this wouldn't be a thing. We need your feedback and participation and support to keep the lights of balanced dialogue burning bright, and whatever support you can manage will make heaps of difference in this regard. To explore the page and listen for free, or if you'd like to make a donation, Visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. And now we return to our guests for a fascinating interview about this practice called street epistemology. I'm here today with Anthony Magnabosco and Linda Moko. So I want to talk to you both about a method of dialectic. Let's call it that. I think we could, right? It's called street epistemology. Um, I'll let you explain it. But as far as I understand it, yeah, this is a way of conversing with people trying to get to the core of why people believe what they believe. And um, it stems from a Peter Bogosian book called... Uh, a Manual for Creating Atheists. A Manual for Creating Atheists. Thank you. Um, Anthony, I have been enjoying, like, saddling up watching your videos on YouTube. I, too, am an atheist, and I'll, I'll let you explain this whole thing, but... Um, and have been, more than you, super, like, barbed about the conversations I have with people who believe in religions and gods. And it's been fascinating to watch your show. Could you tell me a little bit, Anthony, you first, about um, your basis for engaging in this method of conversation 
and uh, what your channel is all about and what you're trying to do. What is street oh, epistemology? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having us on your show. It's really nice to be here. Uh, we've been dabbling in street epistemology for a while. Uh, myself going on, I think, five years or six years now, where I've been taking some of the ideas from Peter Bogosian's book, where he suggests engaging with people on sensitive topics where you use questions to explore what they believe, why they think it's true, and how they determine that it's true. It's It seems to be a kind of an effective way of slowing a person down, getting them to reflect on their belief, mm. and sometimes even adjusting their their confidence that what they think is true is really true in a way that doesn't rile them up, that doesn't cause a person to become defensive, that opens them up to question, to wonder, to doubt, perhaps even. And uh, it's it's been kind of a, an interesting journey. Uh, you mentioned the videos. I've been uploading videos of my conversations where I, I go out with a, with a camera and, and ask strangers on the street if they want to chat for five minutes or so about something that they think is true. And... I, I, can't, I can't say that when I first went out, the conversations were the best. <laughs> they were pretty rough. But I think over time, uh, the, the the approach that I've been using and honing and getting feedback from others has improved. And uh, I'm really glad that you had a chance to watch some of the videos as well. You you Like you say, you go around and you're literally on the streets. I mean, you walk outside on the streets meeting people that you have not met before and engaging them in these conversations about beliefs that, at least in their mind, and at least at the moment, are core to their sense of self, that seems such like a like a dangerous thing to do <laughs> in terms of dialogue. You would think it, yeah, you would think it's so strange to do. I, I don't know if you do want to finish the, the thoughts before I respond. Sure. I, well, I just want to know if you have to convince people that you're being an honest in, interlocutor, or if they if there's something about your mannerisms and, and tone and way you ask questions that just makes them feel comfortable as you go. Oh, let's, I, I don't really know what they're thinking, but I get the sure. impression from the way that I introduce myself and explain what I'm doing and give them the option of participating and encourage them to be honest with their responses that most people that I encounter seem to enjoy it. They seem to be willing and honestly exploring a, a sensitive topic with a stranger. And they also seem to to have liked it at the end of it, where they want to learn more about it, and they thank me for spending the time to to question their their deeply held views. It seems kind of odd, like, wait, you're, you're really like going up to strangers and asking them, them to explore this very sensitive belief? There's maybe an optimal way and a suboptimal way of doing that, and I think I've 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 kind of explored both sides of that. But yeah, that, that's kind of what I do. I, you don't have to initiate talks with strangers on the street to do street epistemology. The name itself sort of implies that that's the case, but you don't. Most people wait for these these topics to kind of bubble up naturally. But I like to initiate the talks and record them, and then share them with the public to get feedback on how to get better at it. Okay, so I watch you going up to people on the street, and my first thought is, what would I be thinking when this guy approaches me on the street? And yeah. uh, thoughts in my head are like, I have this feeling as though um, conversations like that are, are supposed to be had in a, in a particular kind of forum, in a certain kind of setting. And then I start thinking, well, where could I have them? At the dinner table? I'm like, no, not there either. So these are just, un sometimes talking about core beliefs, are, it's a very uncomfortable thing to do. And the more comfortable we can make it, the more we can 
acknowledge each other and, and, and be present in, in dialogue. Yeah. It's almost a little safer to be just engaging with somebody that you don't know about these topics as opposed yes. to somebody that, that knows your background, that that's a good close friend or a family member. Not that you can't use street epistemology with those folks, but maybe the fact that I am a stranger encourages a person to open up more than they might not normally do. Oh, good point. I have, Linda, when I'm watching your videos, I the feel of it is a little different. You have this sort of down home, can I say that? Like, I, um, you seem to be a very agreeable person talking about mm. something that you may very well disagree about with somebody else. And I just feel comfortable. When I, I'm, I watch Anthony and I have to be de-escalated as he's doing these interviews because I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> really? what's going to happen? Well, I have, I mean, it's just the situation. It's not you. It's just that you walk up to somebody and I, it seems like a loud space. It's on the street. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I hope this goes well. And it always does. It's just a great way of uh, converging. Mm -hmm. Linda, when I watch your videos, I have this feeling like everyone's comfortable at the onset. And maybe, um, maybe I have a, a bad, a wrong idea about that. Do you have a different mm -hmm. basis or different style for engaging with people than Anthony does? Well, I'm trying to do what Anthony's doing, but I'm also really new. So I think at, at this point, I don't really, I'm I'm not there yet where I can ask like the really, really good questions that really, really um, facilitate the thinking in the moment and that might challenge it like really well. Um, I am getting there though. And I have had situations where I'm thinking that, um, uh, that the person I'm interviewing is actually challenged. And I think when you, we watch that when we watch Anthony do that. That's where we go like, they're like doing it and they're thinking and, uh, oh, that would be so un uncomfortable. But what I found and also now that I'm doing it myself and learning it myself, what I see when I watch Anthony's videos now with my experience just of this year of learning and practicing is that um, people really enjoy talking about and thinking about what it is they believe. Um, I think they are more surprised when they are challenged that they actually got challenged, that the questioning mm. was kind of different from what um, people usually ask. Um, so that's what I see nowadays when I watch Anthony's videos. And, uh, yeah, for the most part, I just get feedback that it's just fun to have somebody listen to you and really want to understand what it is you believe and what you think and then ask good questions. And I just hope I get to the really, really good questions one day. I really like about folks like Linda getting into street epistemology it's not a one-way street where they may have watched my videos and then went out to try it. Number one, they, they bring their own unique style to it. And what I mean by a two, like it's a two-way street because I can watch Linda's videos and see something that I never would have thought of that would be useful to make mine better. So there's this back and forth exchange of these, these different content creators who are uploading their examples and the entire community, I think, gets a chance to grow and experiment and see what's working and what's not. Mm. What does a successful dialogue look like when you reflect on a conversation you've had? Is there something mm. about the conversation which would make it successful or not? I suspect our answers would differ. Mm. Yeah, for me now, I can say give a really short answer. It's just when I haven't like completely crapped in my pants and like the person <laughs> left and was like happy. That is a good conversation. That's, low, that's very low threshold. So like yeah. clean underwear. <laughs> is that a loaded question? <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> what is a success for me? These days, it's uh, it's a conversation that is five to ten minutes long. 
it's uh, the background is it's not so noisy, so it makes for a good video. Um, the person truly appears to be reflecting on their claim and how they got there and if they can maintain that level of confidence. And then maybe ending on a good note where they thank me for their for my time. Mm. They're very appreciative of having had the talk. And maybe even on top of that, like the cherry on top is them saying, what was this thing that we're doing again? Because I want to look into it. I want to understand what this was and I want to see more of this. And we tell them go to streetepistemology.com, for example. So that that's probably a success for me. I, there's There's probably several other things, but just off the top of my head. So when you engage a person enough that they feel fully part of the process, is that a, an okay way to say it? I definitely want people to feel like this was a, a mutual exercise, that this wasn't just me ramrodding a point of view or something. I, I really do hope that they look back on it and say, that was a fun joint exploration of my belief. I have a better idea of this thing that I think is true than I, have ne than I ever have in my entire life. That's really important to me, yeah. Hopefully they walk away with that. So when people check out your videos, I guess I find it hard uh, to convince people, and this is what I was saying at the beginning, that what I'm doing when I'm engaging with them in a conversation is trying to find out what they believe, end of story. I'm not trying to debate you. Um, I do clinical work, so aside from the, the podcasting and interviewing, and in my clinical work, it's what we would call motivational interviewing. Very, very similar process. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is trying to get people to tell me out loud what, how it is that they form a belief and what they'd like to do about it. Um, and mm. that's even kind of hard to convince. Even though I tell people that's what I'm doing, and even though I'm paid to do it, and it's almost like you could fire, get me fired if I'm not really doing it. It's hard to convince them it's really what I'm doing. It's, like, it's almost like there's a, there's a game being played and you don't want to be the pawn in the game. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you ever have to, either of you, do you ever have to um, do any convincing that... Do you mean like people start defending what they believe even before you've challenged it? or? I think the people no? start... Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if people are ever skeptical about the process, about your basis for engaging in the conversation. Are you talking about participants or observers or both? Good question. I'm talking about participants specifically. Mm. But I'm, what I'm saying is that I, as an observer, could imagine being a participant and being skeptical yeah. of the process. From my experience, having interviewed more than a thousand people, most people at the end of the talk seem to have enjoyed it and are grateful for it. Mm. I don't, I don't think, I'm sure it must have happened, but I don't think it's, I mean, I don't really think it's happened a lot where somebody says, uh, I totally saw what you were doing there. And, um, I hope you're happy with yourself or that type of, there, there's just not <laughs> yeah. a negative reaction. Like people, especially I, over the years, I've become more upfront up and frank with what I'm intending to do during the talk. Sometimes people message me or they leave a comment on, on YouTube to say, you're going, you're giving them too much detail. You're confusing them. But no, I don't think that's the, that's the case. I try to explain very clearly what's happening and I try to meet that expectation throughout the entire conversation. And sometimes I'll even ask for feedback. What did you think about the talk? You're not going to hurt my feelings. Can you give me some feedback? Now, maybe people are being overly polite and they're lying to me. Or I, I, don't know, I don't know any other way but to base it on some self-reported feedback. And the large majority sure. of the people that do tell me 
after they had the conversation, they're like, no, I really like that. That was fun. Thank you so much. That, that seems to kind of be the response that I get. Linda, is your experience mm -hmm. basically the same? Yeah, I just went out for the first time in um, in a park in the streets of Helsinki uh, a few weeks ago. I haven't had time to edit it because I'm learning how to do that. So nothing's uploaded yet, but I did film it and I did um, do the whole thing where I explain what I'm going to do, that I'm, you know, I upload it if they are happy with the conversation. We can also not upload it. I got um, four conversations. Everybody agreed to the uploading and everybody left um, happy and and got my card and I was like, oh, I'm going to show this to my kids so they can show me where I can find the show and all that. Um, what I also noticed in uh, now that I've been watching the footage back is that, uh, for example, the, the first conversation I did, I thought that the lady at some point was thinking that I was proselytizing. Like mm. we start really neutral because I was very neutral or tried to be. Um, and But then at some point, because I guess I was – kind of digging for the belief thing, you know, because we were talking about science and it's good to have a job. And I was like, but yeah, there's something other that you might be thinking in there or believing. Um, and we did start talking about the Bible and stuff. And at one point I thought that maybe she was thinking that I was proselytizing, but then towards the end she realized I wasn't. So I mm. think I sh she was maybe confused by my intention. I think it's conceivable that the, my interlocutors after the conversation are probably surprised that it went as deep as it did. They probably weren't expecting it to go as deep as, as mm. it, these conversations usually go. But that being said, I, I don't usually, I don't usually get any, get feedback to say like, you misrepresented what we were doing here or anything at all like that. Ever a, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna linger on this too much longer, but right. ever a, uh, a tension that you feel because it's a way of conversing that is not your typical way of conversing where you feel uh, the consequence of the next thing out of your mouth could make or break the conversation Ooh. or it, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question that there, I can get really worked up during these talks, even though you might not notice it. It well, number one, I'm not usually on camera, hmm. but uh, I try to keep a really calm, even voice but even as the conversation's going, and it seems like we're really making progress, um, there's there's this like phenomena, like what is it called, deer fever? Have you ever heard of that? No. Yeah, I think like these hunters, they go out and just as they're about to shoot the deer, like they start to tremble, oh. and then they miss the shot. Yeah, it's something like that. I don't hunt, but I've heard of it, and, and I, I I imagine it's probably something like that where you're you're making such good progress, and it's just a, such a profound thing, and you're like. That great question that I was going to ask just slipped my mind. Now what do I do? There is sometimes like a panic that might set in at that point where you don't want to blow it because it's going so well. But um, it doesn't happen that often. And even if it does, it usually buys you a little time where the person, they might just keep explaining what they're – and then they might reveal something else. So it's kind of hard to screw up at this. The, maybe the biggest the – biggest, Thing that could shake a person who's pra practicing this might be trying to avoid slipping into the argumentation yeah. and presenting counter evidence that shows that they're mistaken, especially if they say something blatantly, obviously wrong. It's kind of hard to, to put your knee jerk reaction in check and just let the conversation flow. 
Yeah, in which so in which case you then have to to steer the conversation back to its its. its if life. you can, sometimes sometimes you might really just shoot yourself in the foot with these you know with these dialogues, and mm. you you just can't resist defending that you can be a good person without a god. For example, sometimes people say things that might trigger you as a practitioner of that. But if you can just if you yourself are usually your biggest impediment when it comes to effective street epistemology. And if you could just manage to recognize the things that will throw you off and figure out a way to just set it on the back burner and just proceed with asking questions, you're going to probably do just fine at this. Wow. What, what is the street epistemology uh, equivalent of saying uh, abort? You know, like, do you, do you just get mm. it and say, oh, thanks for your time. Sorry about that. Oh yeah. Or do you turn... there, there, there's definitely times that that I would avoid a conversation. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Linda. Um. Well, I did start with an apologist, so I guess I don't have that. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, mm. um, I haven't I haven't experienced it yet where I'm like, no, I don't want to continue with this conversation. Oh no, sorry. So I did four conversations. I filmed three of them. One of them I didn't even ask the lady because she was um emotionally um. D distraught she was like um she had just left her apartment she started talking she she obviously wanted to talk to somebody she had an, a stressful situation at home mm. so that i did was not thinking se at all that whole conversation but we sat down and had coffee and she got to speak her mind but that was a moment where okay i'm not gonna ask you about your deeply held beliefs and challenge them today yeah, sometimes you get a person they're on their way to the hospital because they're sick and there, there's a chance they may not come out. I, I'm not going to challenge why they think their God is helping them through that difficult time. Uh, I've ended some conversations with people where it seemed apparent that they re they had a particular need for this belief above and beyond a typical, your re a reasonable person's need for their belief. So you you sometimes throttle that back. Um, there was a blog post on the <clears throat> on the street epistemologist website, street epistemology website, uh, called "When to Abstain from Doing Street Epistemology." Because I do think that there are times where, no, I, I think I'm just going to end this talk and move on to somebody else. Mm. You, you both talk about religion, supernatural beliefs. Is that uh, usually where you hover around about these conversations? I think that's really interesting. That's like the whole, the, like, what is it I'm missing because I, I don't have this belief. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm most interesting, interested in. And that usually, that usually, these conversations usually um, are around things like, Anthony, I, I noticed when you start a conversation, you'll say a deeply held belief, and then you'll start giving examples, and you'll say, you yeah, know, like a belief in karma, or... Uh, that there is a God. Um, yes, but the key thing there is the deeply held part because yeah. you can SE an opinion, like what's your favorite flavor of ice cream right. or what's your favorite sports team or where do you stand on paper bags versus plastic bags? Those don't make for really interesting videos to watch for one thing, and they're much more difficult to use SE on, I think. Street epistemology seems to be really good for helping people re-examine the entire methodology they use to get to a conclusion on a very sensitive a very sensitive conclusion, a very sensitive claim that is core to their identity. Those are the ones that I'm most interested in because they 
they tend to influence so many other things. So if, if you said, listen, Anthony, for the next year, you can really only go out and do SE on one topic. I would say, well, it would be God because mm-hmm. there are so many other beliefs that are tied to that one. But these days I, I, I ask people to pick a topic. I want them to pick the thing. Sometimes people say, well, I believe in karma and I believe Jesus is my savior. And I ask them, well, which one influence you, influences you the most on a day-to-day basis? And you can kind of narrow it down. I could SE either of those topics, but I want to spend my time on the one that has the biggest influence on that person and how they behave, because that's really what we're talking about here. The beliefs that people hold motivate them to behave differently. Hmm. And it's my sort of presumption, my assumption that if people act out on beliefs that are really true, this world will probably be a better place. And that's kind of what also motivates me to go out and do this too. Yeah. yeah and that would also be my motivation. I do believe, I believe that, uh, um, well, like Anthony says a lot and I, um, completely, um, agree that I would rather believe in as many true things as possible and be fooled as little as possible. Mm. And I think a lot of, um, unfalsifiable supernatural beliefs can, um, be, um, um, they can fool people. I have family members and, and relatives and friends that have been fooled in really big ways, and I want to facilitate um, independent thought and uh, reflection on these things, critical thinking. I think that's why I'm interested in the supernatural beliefs, in God beliefs. I, I um, suspect people are not looking at them critically enough, is my opinion. And, and I think we're in that same boat too. Like just because we pre- we like to practice street epistemology, a lot many people will look at that and say, "Oh, you are so arrogant. You think you have the truth, and you're correcting all these people." No, no, I, I very more than a hundred percent confidence. Uh, that's not that doesn't make sense, but I have a very <laughs> high degree of confidence that I hold a lot of beliefs, a lot of views that do not match reality. But it's a it's kind of a humbling thing once you recognize that, oh shoot, it's okay to it's okay to acknowledge that I might be mistaken on something. But let's figure out what that is so I can stop believing it. Believing things that aren't true, even willingly, in a in a way, it poisons your whole frame for understanding things. So I wanted to ask, do you think something like street epistemology is a sensible way to engage with people who I I I'm certain that I disagree with but whose ideas I know are important because conver- for me, converging two people with big ideas and who I know are intelligent, uh, converging on a topic that I know we disagree on is still important. I think some truth could emerge out of that that neither of us suspected. Would street epistemology be the right way to do that, do you think, or a sensible way to do so? Well, I think so. I, th- I think that's one of the strengths of the method is that it's ideal for talking about sensitive topics that people find very important and, and they, they would be fundamentally different if they, and maybe even troubled if they were to discover that it wasn't true. Uh, a lot of this really comes down to whether or not a person wants to believe true things. There will be some people, it becomes evident during the, during the dialectical that, that we engage in that, and sometimes people will even come out and say, listen, Anthony, when it comes down to it, I think I'd just rather believe things that, that give me comfort. Mm. I get value from this belief and it doesn't really matter to me if it's true or not. 
that, of course, is scary when you hear that. And sometimes I wonder if re- people really mean it. But uh, there are people who, who are like that. But yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that this technique of street epistemology lends itself really well to those types of situations. I practice a technique that is called steel manning. You've heard of this term, the opposite of straw yeah. manning. Um, the, the, I heard it from a fellow, Eric Weinstein, um, who, is, who is now a pretty popular intellectual, but I don't, I don't think he made it up. And um, it, it basically, it just, it's simply the opposite of straw manning. Steel manning means painting the most charitable interpretation of your opponent, I guess if you could call it that, or interlocutor, I guess is a good way to say it. Painting the most charitable picture of their argument insofar as they actually agree with it. They would say, yes, that is my argument. And then you go from there. Is that, do you think, the same or different or all part of the, the whole act of street epistemology? That is... When I do that, am I engaging in something that is part of street epistemology, or is that sort of a, a different flavor of discussion and argument? Did you want to take that, Linda? Or? Well, I'm just thinking that what I try to do, what I'm attempting to do, is to um, relay it back to my interlocutor as accurately as possible in the way that they said it. So I'm not interested in making it prettier or worse or anything, just trying to... Um, say it out loud back to them so that they can hear it themselves and correct it if it sounds funny somehow, mm. or and also to show that I've understood what they said, that I got it, that I heard it. Yeah. I suppose the difference I, is... A I, lot can't of add, this... and I can't add much to that. I mean, that's that's really what we try to do in street epistemology. And I think I heard the steel manning term a year or two ago, and I was like, oh, that's that's exactly what we're doing. We ask for clarity on what they're saying. We'll, we'll ask them for their definition of what the wor- these words mean. Some of these words are complicated. They need to be unpacked. And then, uh, like Linda was saying, we'll repeat it back to them and then uh, give them an opportunity to correct us. Like, uh, if, I, if I misunderstood it, I don't want to keep going, you know, going further through the conversation under that impression. But, uh, yeah, I would say uh, steel manning is a very big part of SE. Is there a way that you could give me an example of what those, some of those questions would look like? Um, what kind of topics you'd be talking about? High level, what's happening in these conversations is we perhaps, and you'll probably notice some similarities here with, with MI too, I would imagine, but we want to explain to people what we are doing. We want consent. So people are they're like willfully agreeing to participate. If we're recording, of course, we try, we, want, we want to get permission to record them. And then uh, from a technical perspective, like what's happening in these conversations, we want to understand what they are claiming. Exactly what do you mean when you say karma is real? Are we Mm -hmm. talking about humans observing other humans or is there a supernatural component to this? What do you mean? Let's define it. Let's write it down on this piece of paper. There's the steel manning there. And then we want to shift to why they think it's true. What are your main reasons? What are the main justifications why you're 100% sure that karma is actually a true thing. And they may say, they may, they may relay their reason in an example. Well, a year ago, something happened and then something happened in return. And that's obviously karma. But the most crucial part of this whole dialogue, I think is, is when we focus on the method that the person used to get to that conclusion. And that's where street Mm -hmm. epistemology, I think is the strongest. And this is, this is the, how, how did you conclude that that event justifies your confidence that karma is true. 
And that's when the people really start to slow down and think about it and possibly when they when they realize that, oh, gosh, yeah, I really have no way of differentiating between just coincidence and karmic payback. How could I tell the difference between the two? I can't. Oh, my gosh. M maybe 100% isn't the right spot to be on this. And then we try to end it there. We don't then just say, now, weren't you foolish for believing that karma was a <laughs> Don't thing? you feel like an idiot? We don't yet. go that far. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine some practitioners could, would, and do do that. Yeah. But I would advise them not to. What, what I think is best is when you end it so the person can think about everything. They can think about the conversation. They can think about the belief formation process and decide to move on their own. They may say, that was an uncomfortable talk. I don't want to think about it again. Karma's real, and I'm just going to go my happy, merry little way. There, yeah. there might be people that do that, but hopefully they slow down and think about it. Now, is there part of that sequence? Uh, Linda, I'll go to you. That whole sequence mm -hmm. that is the least comfortable for you or part of it that you enjoy the most or find the most natural? Uh, it's the one I enjoy the most when I get there. It's the one that's still hardest for me to get to. Um, mm. I think somewhere I'm still a little bit afraid, actually, of the power of SC and uh, kind of uh, and and the, and that's why I don't really get the good questions unless I'm feeling really comfortable and it's like easy and it's like oh yeah so so you know how did you determine yeah so yeah my fear is can stand in the way still um, but I'm getting there and. Uh, I'm working through it. Um, what was the other thing I was thinking? Oh, sorry, it just flew out of my head. Um. Well, I was thinking that uh, when you ask a person a question and they're struggling to answer it, it's really easy for the practitioner to step on that silence and that reflection. And because they're, they feel so uncomfortable, you want to give them a life raft and pull them out of that, that uncomfortableness. But I think one of the, one of the most human things you can do is resist that urge and let them struggle just a little bit, just a little bit, and and see if they can figure it figure it out on their own. Because that's where I think the pebble is placed, and you can really do yourself and them a disservice if you jump in too soon. Mm. So yeah, that was what I was kind of trying to express, <laughs> but not doing a very good job of. It's like I am so empathetic and and like I put the pathetic and sympathetic, and uh, I just. Uh, uh, I know that thinking about things and reflecting is a good thing for people. I want to like facilitate that to people, but that in the moment you see them going like, and then oh no, yeah. I want to like, help oh, you. Oh, let me help them. Yeah. Um, I'll, you know, and then I'll <laughs> it's kind of the, it's kind of ironic because mm. I think it's kind of ironic because I think people. This might seem really self-serving and arrogant, so forgive me. But I know I, I might be off here, but it's possible that a certain degree of empathy will help you be better at SE, but it could also be a detriment. Just mm -hmm. like in that example that we gave you, like it really seems like he's struggling with this response. Like this poor guy, he, he's on camera now with a stranger and he's struggling to come up with a, with a, a very simple answer to a core belief. Like, let me help him out. But if you think about it, you are helping them by, by helping them be a little bit comfortably uncomfortable and, and marinate in that in that difficulty a little bit, but then be there for them afterwards. Um, give them a card. Give them a way to contact you, and and then ask them if they want to ask you any questions. This can be a back and forth, which might be different than from MI. I would imagine you probably don't have 
your patients than engaging with you about your background. Maybe you do, I don't know, but it's not off the table uh, when you when we're using SE. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, yeah, no, I I try not to have people ask too many personal questions. It's just neither here mm. nor there, nor is it, uh, I guess, ethical by code. But um, I know what you mean when it comes to wanting to act as a proxy for the silence. You know, you in, you instill your opinion because you feel perhaps they couldn't generate one on their own. That's always been the hardest for me in interviewing people on the podcast or uh, in my office or anywhere. It might actually be nice if I knew that people could ask me questions back. Do either of you mm-hmm. find yourselves uh, approachable? Like this this style of engaging in conversation would work if somebody was asking you questions? Oh, I think so. I think I think having a good understanding of SE has made me so much more confident in my own uh, what's what I'm looking for in my own uncertainty. Mm. It's and I, I I'm so much more comfortable explaining that I don't believe in a higher power and not getting upset if they have some sort of visceral or even angry reaction to that. Uh, I, this approach has really given me a lot more empathy for people, uh, particularly people that hold differing views from mine. So uh, it's it's been great all around. Yes, it's great for asking questions and getting to the core of why somebody believes it, but it, it has made me so much more comfortable with my own beliefs and my own uncertainties. It's It's been a fabulous thing. And it's not uncommon for people to watch these videos and say, oh, wow, like I've never seen somebody i've never seen a theist and an atheist talk like that before that's mm. really neat it's now changing the conversations that i have with people that's really neat to see so it's not mm. so so much tribal anymore as it is one big conversation you, yeah. how do you feel about it linda <laughs> yeah, I think I say it. It looked like you had something whole... big to say. <laughs> I was backing up. She was closing in on the camera. Oh, something big's coming. <laughs> I um, use the word we so much more when I have conversation now. Like, uh, how can we solve this? And, and, and um, well, I was looking at this, like, I, I'm not that eager to just um, ramble about my ideas and everything that I think I know. I'm much more interested in kind of, like, giving also the good questions about what it is that I think I might know and the solution I might have and ask the other person. So do you want to weigh in on that? It becomes more of a team effort, every conversation. It's not like just doom, doom, doom. This is what I know. I find myself using hedge words more like, yes, it seems like I'll be able to make the show today at two 30. You know, I, I, Mm. I find myself talking less in absolutes and more in not wiggle rooms per se, but like, I'm acknowledging this, this, the fact that I don't really know for sure. Somebody asks me how I'm doing. I say now I, I'm kind of exploring this, but I'll say something along the lines of like, I think I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I, Cause I don't really know for sure. So it tends to, maybe I'm just like too immersed in this and it's like really effing with my mind. I don't know. I don't think so, but, um, it, it's helping me become a little bit more epistemically humble about things that I think that I know because mm. I probably don't really know that they're true for sure. Has that been a hindrance to you in any practical way? I am. I was just imagining, although this is a reductive ad absurdum of what you were saying, I was imagining my boss saying, will you make the meeting? And I say, I think I can do that. You know, I think yeah, I'm fairly confident I'll be there. Yeah. 
I gave an interview once and the guy was asking me how, how is street epistemology related to the Socratic method? And I said something like, well, I think, I think Plato wrote a book about Socrates. People watched that and thought that I was ignorant on it, but I was, I was just being cautious with my certainty Yeah, because it's conceivable that maybe there really was a Socrates or maybe, maybe, uh, some other person wrote the book besides Plato. So sometimes people can, uh, can read a little bit too much into the uncertainty and, and portray your portray it as ignorance perhaps. Um, but it, it doesn't happen too often. You're so much more comfortable now, both of you, I, I would guess, and it sounds like it's what you're saying, leaning on uncertainty rather than running from it. Does this, does this actually put you in a good position when people misunderstand you um, to, to, to bring them back to, to what's really going on? Like uh, I've had people, I've made a tweet recently, something along the lines of, I don't know if they, somebody, somebody took a, a clip of a video interview that I did where I said something along the lines of, I really can't be certain of anything. And they were hmm. sharing it on social media, like, aha, we got him. Yeah, got him. Look yeah. at this fool. And I'm thinking, what, what are you talking about? Like, that's, that's one of the most reasonable things I think a human should be able to say. So sometimes a little, I'm a little baffled by the way people sometimes respond to what we're doing. Some people do go so far as to say, listen, dude, there are meanings of words and you can't change them. What that word says in the Bible is what it means. Yes, humans might call it something else, but it has this one meaning and they'll fight tooth and nail over the meaning of words. Um, when I'm involved in, a, in an SE conversation, I'll gladly accept whatever definition of whatever word a person is using. I want to understand it. I want to steel man them. I want to fully understand how they're using that word, ask questions about it. And if we find out together that based on their own definition of that word, that it's a woefully unreliable method for concluding that something is true, they've just discovered something wonderful. So mm. there's a real value in, in, in being flexible and going along with people for the purpose of the dialogue. But it does upset some people. There are some people, I, I've noticed this in one of the Facebook groups, there's, there's, there's some folks that are like, no, this word means this. How dare you co-opt it? Oh, we get that even with the, words, with, with the word epistemology. So um, yeah, it's a real fascinating thing. I'm sorry to be, be talking on and on, but it's a, real, it's a real interesting topic for me. No, that is interesting. I guess, are there personality types that, that lend best to these kinds of conversations for you personally? As a, as a practitioner or um, as a participant? As a practitioner. Oh, well, as a practitioner. Well, let me, let me reframe it because that could be either. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that do you mm -hmm. find that your, your most successful conversations happen with a particular uh, oh. people with particular personality types? Mm -hmm. Linda, I'll go, I'll go to you for this one. Um, I think the best conversations I've had where um, the individual has reflected the most and come out of it saying, like, hey, wait, I didn't, I haven't thought of it like that before. Just thoughtful people. Mm. <laughs> thoughtful. <laughs> like people who take the time to think about it. Uh, kind of flexible. Mm. Yeah, I think um, a, a younger person, yeah. perhaps. Uh, mm. Venue is important too. Like oh. I would love... To, to run into a university student on the campus in between class, or let's say their classes are done for the day, so they're not rushed, right? Uh, they may have even just finished finals, so there's just less pressure on them, and, and having a, a nice, wonderful conversation with them. They will typically be more open, honest, and reflective, as opposed to me meeting them at a rally 
where they are now surrounded by people who are passionate about this topic and the stakes are higher and people are, people are listening in, that type of thing. Uh, there's something to be, to be said for the venue and the number of people that are around. Um, and, you know, the environment that you're in, I think, is a really big factor. But as far as the person's concerned, yeah. The, the more open a person is, the more humble they are that they could be mistaken, the better your talk is going to be when you're using SE, mm. for sure. And, and to truly um, curious people, people who like to learn, I think, is also a thing, if that is a personality trait. I don't know. I also was thinking here, as I was listening to Anthony, that because uh, then I flipped the question, like, what's the hardest um, personality? And I would say, or I came to think of, and I don't know if this is the case always, but I have run into, I think, two, three people who also identify somehow as a teacher or an authority on set belief. Uh. I think they defend it more and I find it harder to um, flex. Yeah, if you have a career based on this belief, it's going to probably be harder for you to consider the possibility that you might be mistaken on it. Or you're a mother and you've t taught this to your five children and think oh. it's the best thing since sliced bread. Then. Yeah. So. yeah. I suppose when there's a cost. When yeah. A cost. Well, I was going to say, if you're if this is something you've instilled in your family, then that whole core to your sense of self piece uh, really comes into play. Mm. Do you, you were talking about venue. Do you recommend or not recommend trying to have these conversations over social media, Twitter, Facebook? Mm. I think Linda and I have both done it over social media. It's definitely more challenging when you can't see the person face-to-face. -face. So if you can do a Skype like we're doing or a Google Hangout, that's ideal. Face-to-face -face is even better. People tend to be a little bit more well-behaved when, when they can see the person that they're talking to. Mm. Uh, words can get misinterpreted very easily. So that could be problematic. Um, Words could get misinterpreted easily on over social media, I presume. You over, mean. Yeah, usually text-based words are what I'm talking about. Yeah, can get can get misinterpreted. And then also, there's also a tendency, I think, when you're online for people just to shoot links to things. Like, oh, oh just yeah. watch this video. Just read this article. Whereas watch if you're talking movie. to somebody, they kind of have to explain what they found compelling about the article. So I've often said, like, I think social media is good for practicing it and learning it role-playing perhaps, but really for the best impact, I would say try to do face-to-face -face if you can. Linda, have you had any experiences since you said you were newer at the mm -hmm. whole process? Have you had any experiences that are uh, that were particularly bad or particularly good when you were trying to engage over social media? Particularly bad? No, not really. I'm pretty good online, I think. I, you need to teach me. Yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh... But I'm not very uh, well. Oh yeah, I had a really bad experience when I like um, was behaving badly and giving like leaving comments in a comment section. But this was um, before SE, so yeah, I really do recommend SE if you're having trouble online. Because <laughs> I, I was remember just this, about I don't to know if this is it. the same story you're talking yes, about. Yes, it is. Okay. I think. Do you want me to relay the story? Or you can. Yes, please. Okay, correct me if this isn't what you're saying. But I think uh, Linda was watching an SE video, and was. I don't know, commenting about the, the, the religious interlocutor or something mm -hmm. and just kind of being a little bit blunt. Mm -hmm. And then somebody who also was watching the SE video weighed in on it and said, well, hold on a second. Now he's trying something different and that. It was three other people weighed in and said, like, um, you don't understand SE and I would much rather be his friend than your friend, even though I'm an atheist and all that. Um, 
because I, I had completely disregarded the the text at the end, like, uh, please be respectful when leaving comments. I was not being respectful. I was self-entertaining and, and writing out everything that I thought and was being, like, super smug and a little misknow at all. Um, and after that, the, the person that was being interviewed also contacted me and said, would you like to continue the conversation? And then I had, like, a, a wake-up call. Like, <laughs> wow. Well, I want to learn SE, so why not take this opportunity? So. Wow. I didn't know that happened. Then, but that's that's what's neat is that that people in the the SE community are teaching others how to do it. Like no, like Anthony, you know, Anthony intentionally didn't ask that question about Anthony didn't mm-hmm. Anthony intentionally didn't give them evidence to show that they're mistaken because that would have derailed the whole conversation. He's doing something different. So it's neat to see the community stepping up and guiding the other people who are just getting exposed to this. Yes, and I'm really thankful for that. It was three different people who commented and said that you need to look into SE and, and you're not getting this, Linda, and, like, you're being the the idiot here. <laughs> and I'll look at you. Behaving well. Talking about SE yes. and uploading content. Mm, yeah, so I'm really, really thankful. And, um, uh, yeah, I like to then also help other people in the same way that I've been helped, just by calling them out. Like, it's not helping if we just call each other idiots and, like, whatnot. I I'm, I want to be sensitive to both of your time, but now I'm fascinated. There's a member of my group, the Social Exchange group, um, but which is really just a satellite. It was meant to be a satellite to talk about podcast episodes, but what do people think? And, of course, when you get over a 1,000 people in a group, it you, you stop. You can't control where the conversations go anymore, nor would I really want to. But what happened was it started getting into political conversations, and there was a member of the group. I won't name names, but if you're listening, hi, Tim. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's not, it wasn't really his name. Um, but he, the, it was before I started watching your videos, and I actually did do Socratic questioning with him. It, and I actually am sensitive to his political bent. I'm a liberal, I think I would say, and so is he. And his idea was um, if people have voted for Trump, and they have not since left the Republican Party, then they are either evil or they're idiots. And, you know, we had this long thread. This is over social media. And I thought, well, there are two things I could do here. Tell him that you can't post those things on my group, or I could allow him to flesh out this idea and, and just, you know, for people to see. That's I chose to do the latter. And we got to the end where people could see very clearly how he formed his belief. Um... But it didn't feel very satisfying, and it didn't seem like anybody, it didn't seem like it did any good. Do you think that would have been different mm-hmm. if I'd engaged him in a face-to-face conversation? Or is there, is there a it's way that say you... for, It's hard to say for sure. My, my, my feeling it would be yes, more than likely. It probably would have been more focused. I don't know if it got, if it got disrespectful at any point. I don't think it did, but... Um, usually people are a little bit on their best behavior when it's face to face and, um, perhaps even a little bit more honest mm. when, when they're face to face and perhaps even briefer too. Cause sometimes these written, like I mentioned, these written dialogues can get really out of hand. Do you have, do either of you have advice, suggestions about how to handle, um, a page like that where the conversation, <laughs> you know, the conversations happen and they're all online except for the podcast that I do with people. Um, you know, yeah. what we had, we, well, we have close to 5,000 people in the street epistemology study group. 
And we encountered that same issue where people would get off on these tangents. And so somebody would make a post and say, hey, my aunt, my aunt posted a meme on her Facebook page about abortion, and I was thinking about SEing it. And then before you know it, the discussion thread was all about abortion and not how to use SE with his aunt about the claim. Mm. So it became so problematic that we ended up creating a second group called Chat with a Street Epistemologist, where we, if that ever happens, we remind people that we have a group for that. This is the place for studying street epistemology. If you want to SE uh, abortion or whatever, go to this other Facebook group. That sounds and like it's, it seems to have solved the issue. We had to we had to kind of keep up on it and remind people, but it's probably been a month or two before since we've had that come up. That's brilliant. It's like you're taking people to task, and it's the like the uh, more assertive retort to just sending a link. Like if you want to yeah, have well, this conversation sort of like, here. Hey, rather than than do do all this here, we've created this special group for you. And and it's really kind of helped keep people focused on studying the method, but also getting getting an outlet if they really did want to explore that topic. Very cool. I I so we're narrowing in on time and I want to offer for either of you, if people listeners want to uh, follow your work, of course, Anthony, you're YouTube channel is called Anthony Magnabosco, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's if you search for my first and last name on YouTube, you should find the channel and you could follow me. I have an Instagram that's not doing much, but Twitter, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Magnabosco is my last name. And you can uh, what else? I have a Facebook page, that type of stuff. Yeah, reach out. I'm, I'm, I try to be accessible. There are a lot of people that you might be hearing street epistemology for the first time you want to learn more about it, or you want some advice, please feel free to reach out to me or the community. We're here for you. Linda, same. How do people, how can I direct people to your work? I know that Super Curious is your YouTube channel, and maybe I don't know much yeah. else that I should. Yeah, Super Curious is my um, YouTube channel. There I have a show together with two other street epistemologists, um, Dr. Tyrone Wells and Ben Diesel, and we do a show called uh, The League of SE Reviewers. That's probably what I'm most active with at the moment because I'm, you know, learning how to edit videos. Sometimes I do do, um, like, um, live conversations there too. Um, then you can contact me directly on Twitter. I am at lovemokko, so it's a love before the... Last name, M-O-K-K-O. And, um, yeah. Well, Linda Moko and Anthony mm-hmm. Magnabosco, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to engage with you after having watched all of your videos with delight. And there's a lot more to watch, I suppose. Many more videos to come, hopefully. Yep. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this is really nice. Thank you for putting this all together. This is really fun. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll keep tuning in. And now, here's yet another treat. A funky duo of the show's host, Zach, and his buddy, Aaron Burroughs. Links to their music will be provided in the show notes. Till next time. (laughs) 